So we're going to spend another week in Ecclesiastes, and when I get back, uh, we're going to do some Christmas-themed teachings, and um, remember the... um, the schedule for Christmas, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, so we're going to have our Sunday morning service, regular time, and then Christmas Eve, we're going to have our Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock. New Year's Eve is on a Sunday, and we're just going to have a regular service on New Year's Eve, uh, so just keep that in mind, and I have a whole new sermon series planned for the first of the year, um, so stay tuned for that, but we're going to continue this morning in Ecclesiastes, and the teacher who we've, we've called him throughout this entire uh, journey with him, he, he's on a quest for answers. Like he's looking at life and he's going, I need to find the meaning of this thing. Like is there meaning? Is there meaning under the sun? Is there meaning to the world? He's looking for answers. What's this all about? You know, and, and as you think and as you start to ponder life's meaning, at least for me, I would like to have one that I can put on Facebook. Like, like have it very well-defined, short, the aha moments. It makes perfect sense. From Facebook, I can put it on coffee cups and maybe T-shirts, make my own bumper sticker business. I mean, I, mean, I want something that's very neat and clean. The meaning of life Here it is in one catchy, pithy mission statement. Well, the teacher doesn't have that kind of outcome, and I guarantee if you pressed in as hard as he did, you won't either. Because what he, as he's trying to figure this all out from a worldly perspective, what he he gets to is that... um, the more he presses in, the more things just don't seem to make sense from, from a world's view. The more he tries to figure it out, the more questions he asks, the more things he tries to experience, the more observations that he makes. It just doesn't seem to make sense to him. Now, I think we can relate, some of us, to that things don't quite make sense the way we would like them to. And we're just left kind of scratching our head. But the book of Ecclesiastes is not a book that you go through and at the end you get the answer. It's not like a whodunit. And so you have all this mystery and all this intrigue that goes on. And at the end, you find out that Colonel Muster did it in the library with a lampstand. It's not that kind of book. As I've been studying it, and, and, you know, spending so much time in one book, you read it through and you read it through and you read it through. It really shows that when we search, there's always struggle that's part of that search. When we try to understand, there's always a struggle in our understanding. And, and as, we, as he goes through this book, as he's writing it, and as we go through it, we come to the place of learning that we need to trust God with the answers that we have no answer for. We need to trust God that when we don't understand that he does and he has it in control. That all things God has in control. 
And isn't that, isn't that our journey of faith? Trusting God. See, it's not necessarily always where we end up. But it's who we become on this journey. Who, who is God refining us to be? Who is he changing and transforming? What is he changing and transforming in us? See, it's not about the destination. It really is about the journey. Discipleship is a journey within our faith. It's a journey of faith. And we, we as a church, we're beginning to even embrace that more and more, this, this journey of discipleship. We want, to, we want to offer, introduce pe- as many people as we can to Christ and give them opportunities to be discipled, to grow in their faith, to launch as many people as we can on this journey. Now, last week, the teacher, he, he, he seemed pretty upbeat. He said, you know, when it comes down to it, he's encouraging us to enjoy life. In the no matter what, in the everyday, in the mundane, in the ordinary, there's always blessing because every day that we have on this earth is a gift from God. It's a blessing from him. But it doesn't end there. Like I said, chapter 8 is a little um, discombobulated in his thought process because he's still not satisfied with the things that he has come to understand. This is verse... um, Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 8, he says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day and night, then I saw all that God, and then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if, they, even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. One of the things I love about, well, not only the book of Ecclesiastes, but the entire Bible is, it's very honest. There's no real, I mean, we've come up with all this, the, the sayings and the cliches, but the Bible, the Bible just kind of lays it right out there for us. Boom, here it is. This is life. This is the reality of it. Now, the teacher's trying to learn as much as he can learn through experience, like, what kind of experiences can he come up with so that he can try to figure out the meaning of life? He's, he's observing other people living life, life and death, people being born, people living. He wants to understand. He wants to know. He is on this very brutal, brutally honest spiritual journey to come to some type of conclusion. And this is what he's come up with so far. Basically, what he's come up with is life is very tiring. And if you think you know what God's up to, forget about it because you don't. Woo! Life is tiring and it's impossible to know what God is doing in the world. And if anyone tells you different, even if it's a wise person, either they're lying to you or they're mistaken. Because no one can comprehend the things of God. No one can know without a shadow of a doubt what he is up to. People losing sleep day and night, the the restlessness of life. Can, Can I get a witness to how life can be very restless within our own spirits? And let alone with, with all of the, the outside stuff that swirls around us. We get caught up and we get busy and busier and busier. And you know, there's there's this this uh, illusion out there that says you can catch up on sleep. 
No, you can never catch up on sleep. And I, I got to thinking, like, what if, what if that eighth day was given to us? You know, that extra 24 hours we all would like to have to get everything done that we, don't, that we can't get done in the seven days. What if we got that eighth day? Here's what I believe would happen. Very shortly, we'd be, that would be filled too, and we'd want a ninth day. We are always so busy running around and restless and losing sleep. And then just add the, per, the pursuit of understanding God. Like we know about the sovereignty of God. Our church believes in the sovereignty of God. That God is in control of everything no matter how out of control it looks or feels. God is in control. And then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, eh, not really. That's a little paraphrase. No matter how hard we pray, no matter how much we study the scripture, no matter how hard we work to understand, it is impossible for us to fully understand God. Impossible. I, I was doing some digging online and... Every day in the world, this is, this is a worldwide thing, every day, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are produced every day. A quintillion is a number with a lot of zeros. I don't even know how many. It took me 10 minutes to figure out how to spell quintillion, but I got it. 2.5 quintillion bytes of data produced in the world every single day. Now, this, this website that I was kind of poking around and said that if you were to take that 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and put it on a Blu-ray disc, you would need 10 million Blu-ray discs to fit 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. Now, if you took that 10 million disc and you stacked them on each other, it would be four times higher than the Eiffel Tower. In one day, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data is like creating 90 years of HD video in one single day. It's a lot of data. And even that much produced every day. We're talking about video and music and scholarship and everything. We will still never figure out the sovereignty, the mysteries of the sovereignty of our God. I mean, we could try, and I think God invites us into that, but to have a full understanding there are mysteries about God that we will never understand. And so some people take different approaches. Some say, well, there is no God. That this is all just kind of a biological random act of woohoo, and then we just got lucky, and here we are today. And then others would, would say that, well, if there is a God or you know, an intelligent designer, he didn't do very good. Like he got this thing up and running, gave it a spin, and he walked away because look at the mess he's left it in. And he's not actively involved in it in any way, shape, or form. But the teacher is not going to give in to that thinking. And we shouldn't give in to that thinking. He knows just how frustrating it is to try to understand the world and the things of God. And what's, he's try what's he trying to accomplish? What's he's, what is he up to? But he believes everything that happens in this world is his work. Everything that happens in this world is God's plan. We don't understand it. Things like Connor's sickness and... and 
whatever God has in store for him later. We, how, do you get it, how do you get your mind around that? Try to explain that to his parents. I would slap you if you tried. Wisdom is knowing that there are things that we will never understand. Wisdom is trusting that God is in control. I have found in the, in the church many times people really wrestle and, and they want the answer. And if they don't get the answer, then it's God's fault and they become angry with him. But I've learned that he doesn't owe me an explanation for anything. He doesn't owe any of us an explanation for anything. He's God. I'm, I'm not. And what I believe we have to come down to is we are just incapable of understanding. Like, like I, I was thinking, okay, what would be the one thing, like if I had one question for God, he was going to tell me anything. Like, Dennis, you've got one question to ask me. I would probably go right for the Trinity one. Like, can you explain to me three and one separate people, person, but you're one, but you're not really one? And I think even if he began with the word the, I would probably explode. I'd be gone. Because that's how deep the mis... This is is the way Paul wrote it in Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor? (laughs) All my years as a pastor, God has never came to me and said, Hey, Dennis, I need some advice. I got got this guy in your church. I just don't know what to do with him. What do you think? Now, no one has ever counseled God. And so we have to begin to as wisdom grows in us, understand that we have limitations. And, our, and within our limitations, within our questions, within our tension of searching, we worship. We worship God because he is worthy. When it's painful, when we don't feel like it, God still is worthy. And so we worship. But the teacher is not going to just leave it there. He's going to continue on chapter 9. He says, so I've reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. There are many things that the teacher wrestles with, but he knows that God is in control. And now he's kind of, he's kind of giving or leaving the, 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 the people of the Lord in the Lord's hands. Saying, you know, God's people are in God's hands. And he trusts that and he believes that. Now, in, in scriptural terms, when the hand of God is used, it encompasses a lot of different things. A lot of different characteristics of who he is. It can describe his love. It can describe his, his control. It can describe, describe his judgments. But here, it's, it's talking about uh, the sovereignty over his people and their actions. 
and how they live and the choices that they make. Again, the mystery of the sovereignty of God has raged on through the centuries and we don't fully understand what it all means. We try to kind of water it down and have a nice theology about it. But God being in control of all things and all things looking sometimes like they're falling apart is really hard to understand God being in control of all things. But he is. It makes me kind of think about, you know, we're, we're a democracy and we vote for our politicians, yet we just looked at that there is no authority established under the sun unless it's been established by God. <laughs> I hope God does better. I digress. No, we're not going there. But for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, to be in God's hand is a place of salvation. It's a place of assurance that he is with you all of the time in a loving, caring, fatherly way. God's hand for the believer in Jesus Christ is a hand of love. As, as, as you think of Jesus nailed to the cross with nails piercing his hands for the forgiveness of our sin, that he gave us his righteousness, that we stand forgiven and righteous before the Father, that we can enter into the Holy of Holies and worship God face to face. We trust him with our brokenness. We trust him with our hurt and our pain and our confusion and our worry and our anxiety and all of the things that he took on the cross and said, I will make this better. I will put this back together again. And in the meantime, you are forgiven. The hand of God for the believer is an amazing place to be. But the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he writes long before the cross, long before Jesus. And there's this frustration that he has about what God is up to. I mean, look at the second part of this verse. No one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Now, that last part of the verse is a little bit difficult at times. There's a lot of argument over what it means. But when we talk about God's love and God's hate, within the Bible, there are many instances where when God loves, it's God accepting you. And when God hates, God's rejecting you. It, the story of Jacob and Esau, for, for Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob was accepted, Esau was, was rejected. Now the teacher's problem is that it seems to him that it's impossible, impossible to know if we've been accepted or rejected by God in his, in his cultural setting. Again, remember, he's writing before Christ, before Jesus went to the cross before God's new covenant. He still believes God's in control, but like, where do we fit in all this? And there's that tension that runs through the entire scripture. John chapter 10, it says, tells us that no one will be able to snatch us out of his hand, God's hand. And then in Hebrews 10, it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Ha ha. Everyone in the world is in God's hands. The question for the teacher is, is he for us or against us? And so he's going to press on. He's going to press and he's going to think. And he wants to understand this. 
all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. He's wrestling with the question, how do we know? Like he's come to this conclusion that you cannot figure out if God is for you or against you by the circumstances in a person's life. Like we want it, we want it, again, I want a Facebook quote about God's purposes or God's meaning. And you would think, from my human perspective, that we, followers of Jesus, we would have a little, a little bit up on the blessing side and a little bit less on the, Ugh, this is a terrible side. And then the people who reject Christ, you would think that maybe they wouldn't have so many blessings and maybe they'd have a little bit more trouble in life. But that's not the way it happens. It's not the way God operates. From an earthly perspective, an under the, under the sun perspective, it's like he treats everyone the same. We all have trouble. We all have good times. We all have bad times. Now, we, un, last week we unpacked this idea that it will be better for the righteous, and the righteous meaning those who have put their faith in God. But he was talking about judgments. When Jesus comes back and he judges the living and the dead and, and those who have put their faith in him, yes, we will go on to, to live in eternity. But right now in this world, there's this tension of why do bad people get blessed the same as good people get blessed? And why do bad people have bad things happen? And even good people have bad things happen. It seems like there's the same thing happening to both of us under the sun. Everyone suffers the same misfortune. And so he kind of brings people into two different categories. The good, the bad, the unclean, the clean, those who take oaths, those who, who won't take oaths. Remember in chapter 5, he told us, he warned us to say, you know, don't make a hasty oath to God. Make sure you think through what you're going to say to him or what you're going to commit to. But he might be thinking of, of Deuteronomy where it tells us to fear God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And so whatever he's getting to, we know that the righteous, those who fear God, will make commitments to him. And those who reject God, they won't enter into any covenant, any commitment with him. And so we have two people, kinds of people in the world in his mindset. Those who honor God by faith and those who don't by rejection. And where the tension lies is the same thing happens to both groups. When a hurricane washes ashore, the house of the non-believer is destroyed right next to the house of the believer. When the earthquake hits, when the tornadoes take out entire neighborhoods, the Christian suffers equally with the non-Christian. I think of the church in Texas, an entire church gunned down. What? Like, entire families lost, killed in that instance. Mother, father, daughter, son. The good and the bad happen to both. We can never separate righteous from the wicked based on the circumstances of life. And the teacher's really frustrated about it, by it. 
This is an evil. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. He's frustrated, and he sees it as evil. All of this evil in people's hearts, all of this madness in the worlds. This has got to be one of the darkest verses in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Because basically what it's saying is we're all full of evil, our hearts are black, so much so that it, that, it, that it makes us crazy, it makes us mad. I mean, just watch the news for a few minutes. You see the, the, the violence and the evil in the world. And then, and then at the end of it, guess what? We die. No matter how healthy you eat, no matter how much you exercise, we will all stand before the Lord one day as this body dies. I mean, I exercise just so I die healthy. It's my, my, it's my best hope. It's the best thing I can get my hold of. I want to die healthy. Like, I don't want people to go, oh, Dennis died. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> I want them to go, really? What happened? But he doesn't leave us hanging there. He's going to press into this a little bit more. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. You know, the, the teacher brings up death uh, every chance he gets. The comparison he makes here is, is from a proverb, a better a live dog than a, than a dead lion. You have to remember, um, dogs back then, they weren't our fuzzy little parts of our family pets who we kiss on the face and sleep in our beds. They were kind of nasty critters that, that ran around in packs outside and ate garbage and killed your chickens, and, and you would throw rocks at them to get rid of them. But he's saying better a live dog than a dead lion. Lions were, were symbols of strength and power and royalty. Better a live dog than a dead lion. And I believe what he's trying to tell us is it's, it's better to be alive than it is to be dead. Now, he's not, he's not um, questioning an afterlife. He, he believes that wholeheartedly. But death is really that great separation of under the sun and eternity. And there's an ignorance that comes to those who pass on, or those who, who go into eternity, that they are no longer concerned with the things that take place in this world. As soon as death comes, we have no part with happens under the sun. Those who die no longer get an earthly reward, and eventually our names will be forgotten. I figure after my great, great, great grandchild is born, I'm just going to be a branch on the uh, Ancestry.com tree. No one will remember me. I don't mean to bum you out at all, but this is our fate. And so, even basic human emotion, love, hate, they disappear. And as you begin to think this through, it really should bring a sense of thanksgiving that we can enjoy another day. 
that we can surround ourselves with people that we love, that we can surround ourselves with people that love us. And there should be thanksgiving in that. No matter how difficult life gets, and I don't want to minimize anybody's pain and suffering, but when you belong to a community of faith, people love you. And they want to be with you and there for you and support you. And so it's better to be alive in some sense than it is to be dead. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Seems like a little bit of a downer. Like, I'm alive, so I can know that eventually I'm going to die. Ha ha. But see, being alive... It prepares us for what will eventually overtake us, and that's our death. Even in the context of eternity, we can begin to prepare. And see, to understand what he's writing in this book, we have to, we have to take it in the context of the entire Bible, even in, in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Because later on in like chapter 12, he says that the soul or the spirit returns back to God. And we can't just leave it there either. We have to take this entire book and put it in the context of the scripture, of the entire front to back, in the context of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because remember, he's writing before the cross. And so it forces us to look beyond this book into what, what gives us meaning in this life. And that is Christ and Christ himself. That is the gift of God in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin that we could be made righteous. The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't claim to have all the answers, not even some of the answers. It seems to set up a lot of questions that God will eventually get to and work out for us. And in that, that is worked out in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ came to this earth Fully man, fully God, lived a sinless life that we could have life, an abundance of life, that we can wake up in the morning with passion, with excitement. We can move in the authority of the kingdom that's been given to us by the power of his spirit. This is, this is the full story. And we can share this gospel that those who don't know would have the light of life. Then Jesus, to the cross, he dies, like really dead, three days, dead. And the power of God rises, raises him up to, to life. Glorified body. We share in that promise. One day, after we're gone, This body will rise. I will have six-pack abs and luscious hair. You laugh. You wait. You're not going to notice me. Fabian will have nothing on me. And each one of us will spend eternity in paradise because the promise of God. Ecclesiastes has to be taken in the context of the entire gospel. He is setting us on this course of searching and looking and asking questions. And the promise of our resurrection is what brings joy to this life. 
confidence that we can live each day in the fullness of the kingdom. It's, it's why our life matters. I, I, I feel bad for Christians who, who can't wait to get, kind of get on with things and just leave. Oh, I can't wait till God, I can't wait till God takes me. I can't, if this life didn't mean anything, he wouldn't have given it to us. If this life wasn't important in some way, shape, or form, why, why would he even, why is he setting us up for hardship? Why is he just setting this, why, I would rather like get saved and just die and go to heaven if there, there was no meaning to this. But there is meaning to life. Every single day, we have the ability to speak words of life to people. Every single day, we have the ability to do life with others. Every single day, we have the, the chance to love people and be with people our family, our friends. Life matters. This life matters. As a church, as the church, we have to live like it matters every single day. Every day is a gift. In the ordinary, in the mundane, in the pain in the neck, everything is God's gift because it's all part of his plan. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Not all of it. Okay, not most of it. But every day is a gift. Every day. How will we spend this gift? How will we use this gift? We have been given this life. Jesus came that we would have an abundance in this life. I'm not talking prosperity abundance. I'm talking about passion and love and grace and mercy and purpose, excitement, abundance. And those who pass, who those who die in faith will have an abundance that we can only guess what it's going to be like. Live like today means something. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Tomorrow's got enough of worries of its own. Today, this is the day that we have. It's the day the Lord has made. What shall we do? Rejoice. Be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I just want to pray a blessing upon this community of faith that they may leave this place with a passion for life that is unparalleled to anything they've ever experienced before. That by the power of your spirit, by the anointing of your spirit, something has clicked, something has changed. And they're going to go from this building, from this place, out into the world, and they're just going to recognize you working everywhere and that you are inviting them to join give them eyes to see ears to hear and a heart that is hungry for your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we love you and thank you we come before you in the name of your son jesus amen 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 uh, I love you guys. Um, if you would pray for Sandy too, because um, she will be home with Eth- um, our children. And, and so um, thank you, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.